Swami Vivekananda said that the way we approach God um, in Vedanta is that we humanize our relationships with the divine and divinize our relationships with the human. What does that mean? What is our relationship with the human? Father, mother, uh, husband, wife, um, children, friend and so on. And what is our relationship uh, with, uh, with, with God, that it's divine, something very high, remote, awesome. Now, Vedanta reverses this. So the relationship which, which, which we have with the human, father, mother, um, can we have that relationship with God? Can we see God as father? Can we see God as mother? Um, can we see God as the child? And with the human being, with people around us, instead of just seeing them as other human beings, bodies and minds, little limited persons, can we see the divinity in them? So that is what is meant by divinizing our human relationships, seeing God in everybody, and humanizing our divine relationship. Our relationship with God is like God my father, God my mother, and God my child, like that. God my friend. So Swami Vivekananda, his teachings on Bhakti Yoga, I think they have been slightly neglected. So you know, when Swami Vivekananda said all the various spiritual paths, he broadly classified them under the four yogas. The path of knowledge, Jnana Yoga, the path of meditation, Raja Yoga, the path of spiritualizing our activities, actions, Karma Yoga, and of course Bhakti Yoga. The path of love and devotion to God. And there are actually these four books on the four yogas. So Bhakti Yoga is a pretty comprehensive text. Somehow, for some reason or the other, that is not we do not concentrate so much on that particular text of Swami Vivekananda. Uh, maybe Raja Yoga is most popular, uh, followed by Karma Yoga, Jnana Yoga. So I thought for today's talk, which is the last talk of this session, before we close for summer, I thought we'll take a look at some extraordinary insights into love, into devotion, into bhakti, which you find in Swami Vivekananda's bhakti yoga teachings. Straight off, in the, um, he says, all that we think of as spiritual practice, most of it, like um, 
singing hymns, ritualistic worship to God, uh, images, icons, um, temples, churches, mosques, all of these things, um, repeating the name of God, prayer. He says all of it is preliminary. All of it is meant for purification of the mind. Then what is advanced? If all of these practices are preliminary, then what is advanced? He says one thing alone is advanced. That when genuine love for God grows in the human heart, that is spiritual, that is advanced spirituality. The, all the practices, the methods, all the equipment, paraphernalia we have in religion, those are just at the beginning, kindergarten stage. It purifies the mind. Of all the things which purify the mind, Swami Vivekananda says, the most powerful is renunciation, tyaga, renunciation. When one turns away from most of the nonsense which occupies our days and nights, uh, we turn away to, uh, towards God. Our heart turns to God from samsara. That is renunciation. That's the core idea of renunciation. And all of these methods of purifying, they ultimately culminate in that renunciation. The most powerful purifier is tyaga. In fact, the Vedas say it is by renunciation alone that some have attained immortality. Now, when you talk about renunciation, it can be scary. The reason it is scary is, it's like saying that I have got something at least in this world, it may be unsatisfactory, it may be troublesome, but you are taking it away from me. All that is nice and good in, in my life, you are snatching it away from me, you are saying you have to renounce, you are snatching it away from me. And this for, for what? For God, Brahman, what you're talking about, it's still pretty theoretical for me. That's why it's scary. It's like you're taking away my toys and then what will I play with? How will I get happiness and satisfaction in this world if you force me to renounce what I have got in this world? But yet, each yoga demands renunciation, Swami Vivekananda says. Karma yoga. You see the path of karma yoga? What is the path of karma yoga? When you become spiritual, how do our actions change? Our actions do not change. What work you are doing, what worship you are doing, it continues. The work you are doing in the office and in the home, the same work you will continue to do. The rituals that you perform in the temple, the same rituals you will continue to perform. But how is it spiritual? How does karma become karma yoga? See, the work that we do at home or in the office or you know, in our workplace, that's karma. Even the work, the rituals that we perform in the temple, so that's spiritual, right? No, that's also karma. There is laukika karma and vaidika karma. So ritualistic work. It's only when it is transformed from uh, selfish action to selfless action, from sakama to nishkama, then it becomes karma yoga. I still perform those actions. I still perform the same rituals. But now the purpose is not the gain of this little person. The same thing is going on. But the purpose is no longer focused on myself. The purpose is now uh, the worship of God in all beings or simply the welfare of all beings. The crucial thing is, it's not this little being, this little person, giving up the fruits of action. We know, karma yoga. You perform the actions as worship of God, giving up the fruits. Giving up the fruits doesn't mean that you'll return your salary check when it comes. It means you're not doing it for that purpose anymore. Your whole goal is oriented towards being selfless and as an act of devotion or worship to God. Giving up the fruits of action in the language of the Gita. It's renunciation. And it's an enormous renunciation and difficult. Uh, 
and difficult. It's a, like a total change in the paradigm of what we think we are doing in this world. We think we are doing things in the world for this little creature. Everything must come to me. Uh, money and appreciation and uh, power and satisfaction. Everything for this little person. And I have found that at one point it's no longer satisfactory. Then the teaching of Karma Yoga is if you do it for others, and you do it as a worship of God, you will actually find the satisfaction you're looking for. You'll actually find the fulfillment you're looking for. But it's renunciation, no doubt about it. Our main point is that it is renunciation. It is really making a big, big, big step internally. Then look at Raja Yoga or Dhyana, meditation, the path of Patanjali Yoga. Again, renunciation. There the renunciation is the renunciation of entire material nature. Patanjali Yoga is based on Sankhya philosophy. What does Sankhya philosophy say? You are beings of pure consciousness. Bahupurusha, many beings of pure consciousness, but you are pure consciousness. You are not consciousness plus mind and body. That's what we normally feel now. Yes, I am awareness, but here, are, here is my personality, here is my body. This is who I am. This package deal. No. Sankhya says, that is your problem. The reason you are suffering in this world is because you have tied yourself up with the products of Prakriti. Um, material nature and consciousness, they are distinct realities. We have mixed them up in our understanding and therefore we are suffering. The only way for release from suffering is to distinguish Purusha and Prakriti, consciousness and matter. That which is awareness and that which you are aware of, these two are distinct entities. This stepping back from entirety of nature, from the entirety of Prakriti, what a great renunciation. You are basically being asked to give up the universe. That is the renunciation of uh, Raja Yoga. And Jnana Yoga, well, better not even speak about it. The renunciation there from the very beginning is, is tremendous. The moment you have understood Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya, and it does not take much effort to understand, I am just talking about understanding it. The moment you have understood something as true, why will you not live according to it? I have understood, I am the witness consciousness in this entire universe, not only separate from me as Sankhya says, as Yoga says, but is also an appearance in me. It's not even real. The Brahman alone is real. As the Isha Upanishad says, Isha Vasya Midam Sarvam Yatkincha Jagatyam Jagatena Tyaktena Bhunjitha. I see one Brahman everywhere. But this is to be realized and used to be centered in it. How? Tyaktena, Tyagena Shankaracharya says. By renunciation. Renunciation of what? Then the last part of that mantra says, Tena Tyaktena Bhunjitha Magrida Kasya Svidhanam. Do not covet anybody else's wealth. And Shankaracharya comments there. Do not covet anybody else's wealth. Why? Because there is no wealth to, be co wealth to be coveted. It's an appearance. It's a mirage. What will you covet if it doesn't exist? Now imagine the kind of renunciation that is being asked of. At the point that you begin to understand Advaita Vedanta, you are asked to say that this entire world which appears, all the good and the bad, and this body, this, which is so precious to me, which is my identity almost. And this personality, even more difficult, this little person. All of that is an appearance in, in consciousness and it's not real. The underlying reality is consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss. Imagine the kind of renunciation that is asked for. Hmm. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna used to make fun. 
that if if a thorn pricks your hand you shout ouch you talk about renouncing the <laughs> entire world it is not that easy now in bhakti in contrast swami vivekananda points out there is renunciation definitely there is renunciation but it is easier it is so sweet and smooth you don't even notice when you have renounced the entire world you are so happy you're so full and fulfilled in your love of god you're full of love you're blazing with love there is if they are if they have asked you that what about the entire world you gave it up you won't even notice it's a smooth and easy renunciation that same most powerful purifier renunciation is there in bhakti as much as it is there in karma in dhyana and in gyana but here the path is is distinctly is significantly easier significantly smoother significantly sweeter swami vivekananda gives four examples here which explains how uh, renunciation becomes easy in bhakti one one he takes up the uh, example of human love so he says when a man loves a woman or a woman loves a man and then they fall out of love and then somebody falls in love with somebody else once you fall in love with somebody else the earlier love is given up it disappears because you are in love with somebody else now that's an one example the second example he gives is of uh, nationalism so a person loves oneself my me my i me mine my own family that's it then it expands to my community yeah. my people and then it expands further to my nation what a great power nationalism is the devotion to one's nation which can inspire a person to give up one's life also that kind of love develops to it's a love for the vast basically love for nation but that even then one might expand even further beyond narrow nationalism beyond like a violent fanatical nationalism to love of all of humanity now you're not giving up the earlier love you don't even feel that you've given up anything you feel you have grown and you're bigger and vaster more fulfilled so that's the second example he gives nationalism another example he gives of how renunciation works in bhakti is that we are crazy about the things of the senses and to see something nice to taste something nice the entire uh, entertainment industry food industry all of that to touch to smell to hear the things of the senses pull us and we are mad after getting them but as a person becomes more and more refined the lower and grosser experiences of the senses they fall away easily somebody has cultivated a taste for classical music so the joy there is so much higher so much more refined so much better that uh, that person may spend hours and hours listening to a difficult rendition of uh, a particular piece of classical music and it will not seem like a renunciation it will not seem that he has given up the you know maybe he could have gone and had had a party or watched a movie that doesn't seem would not even pull a person whose tastes are refined so the people who are so immersed in in the appreciation of art you go to the museum of museum of modern art here and spend hours i know this uh, well known painter who said swami that's not the way to see a museum your favorite paintings are there they are like your best friends now when you want to visit your best friends uh, would you want to visit 
hundred of them at once. <laughs> That's not appreciating your friends. You should go and visit maybe one person and spend two, three hours with that. So the way to go is you go and you select, I want to see this painting and sit there. Now if you sit two hours and there are beautiful places to sit and watch uh, the famous paintings in the Museum of Modern Art. You spend two hours sitting there and watching it. It's actually a renunciation. If somebody goes and tells you, tells that art connoisseur that there's a nice superhero movie playing in the cinema hall, would you like to watch it? Absolutely not. It's a disgusting idea. Now, how has this person moved from enjoying lower things of the senses to higher things? It's because the joy is so much more refined and higher. He does not feel he has given up anything. He feels he has gained much more. But still, it's a renunciation. One person has evolved. So, culture. Culture makes uh, renunciation of lower things of the senses much easier. That's the third example he has given. One more very beautiful and simple example he gives. In the deep of the night, the only source of light are the twinkling stars in the sky. But when the moon arises, the starlight is still there, but it's sort of overwhelmed. And when the sun rises in the morning, the beautiful full moon is still there on the horizon. Sometimes you can see the sun on one horizon and the moon still faintly there. That which was so glowing and overwhelming in the dark of the night is just faintly visible. Similarly, when the love of God arises in the human heart, all the pull of the senses, which was so powerful earlier, all the pull of you know, worldly relationships, family and worldly commitments, they all become like the dim starlight or even like the moon which has been, um, which fades away, which is overwhelmed by the light of uh, the sun. So the light of love of God that arises. The beauty of bhakti is not one human emotion has to be given up. Sri Ramakrishna said again and again, more piriyada, whether it is love or lust or greed or even anger, all of these things which basically have to be transmuted or given up in the path of meditation. You can't be angry and start meditating. It's impossible. You can't be angry and you still think you are Brahman. What is an angry Brahman like? <laughs> Not possible. You can't be angry and go out and serve um, humanity there. You won't. But you can be angry and be a bhakta, a devotee. You can direct your anger towards God. Why have you not shown yourself to me? Why am I, I do not feel the love of God in my heart? Is that, that um, you know, complaint against God? Complaining in spiritual life is not spiritual. But if you complain with to God and with God, uh, that's very, very spiritual. I mentioned a few days ago, I think somewhere I was mentioning, that uh, it was shared with me by um, uh, the professor Arindam Chakravarti, the eminent philosopher. So his guru, oh, he told me, I have not shared this. He told me that uh, quietening the mind, calming the mind down, that's essential for meditation and prayer, and important for spiritual life. But look at the methods that are suggested. I will not talk with anybody. I will go away from uh, human company in solitude. I'll go to Gangotri and sit in a cave. I sit quietly. Such people I've seen sometimes, people who live in solitude for a long time, they start talking to themselves, muttering to themselves. <laughs> and then they take a vow of silence. I will not speak. No, no speech. But then the mind keeps chattering. The speech is not actually external. The mind is speaking. 
there's that funny story, the Zen story, of the monks sitting outside a Zen monastery. And on top of the monastery, a, a flag is uh, flying, you know. And the three monks, the newcomer, the novice, and the little more advanced, and a more advanced, the senior monk. So the newcomer says, oh, look, the flag is moving. The more advanced monk said, it's a good teachable moment and can should uh, show him something deeper. No, the flag is not moving. You should look beyond the effect to the cause. It's the wind which is moving. The wind is moving. The senior most monk was sitting there thought, I will teach this guy a lesson also. It is not the wind which is moving. It is actually the mind which is moving. Uh, a more deeper philosophical point. Now the senior most monk who was an old and sick bed in the monastery upstairs. He looked out of the window and he said, it is tongues which are moving too much. Keep quiet. <laughs> I'm trying to rest. <laughs> so, um, chattering of the mind. How do you stop it? So, Professor Andam Chakravarti said, his guru um, said that there's an old Indian saying that poison is counteracted, removed by poison. Bishe kate. Poison cuts poison. And poison destroys poison. Uh, it's actually the very principle on which medicine also works, uh, both ancient and modern. Or vaccines, what are they? You, they either take something from the, um, the original bacteria or virus. Um, I know Dr. Sharma here makes me, will may not make me f forget that the new vaccines don't take something from the original <laughs> virus. They, are, they artificially replicate a part of the protein. But yes, something similar. And then they can counteract um, the, the original disease. So the guru said, the only way to make the mind, effective way to make the mind stop chattering is to chatter with God. Talking will overcome talking. What kind of talking? Talk to God. As the more you set up an internal dialogue with God, what are you going to talk about? Whatever comes to your mind. Feel the presence of God. Imagine the presence of God. And take your, uh, your observations, your comments, your questions, your complaints to God. And that you will see after some time, the mind quietens down. So every emotion in the path of bhakti, every emotion can be directed. It is no suppression. I will not talk. It's actually suppression. It's only a pretty purified mind which can truly observe mauna, silence, because outer silence and inner silence should go together. But without inner silence, if I impose an outer silence, you're just building a pressure inside. <laughs> and I've actually seen uh, monks, I've seen at least two, three cases where they impose strict vows of silence on themselves. And after the vow of silence is over, you better run for your lives. <laughs> <laughs> Their terrors, they'll catch you and speak and speak and speak. So all those years of silence, and he's making up for that. But that's repression actually, suppression. In bhakti, you don't have to suppress one single thing. It's all directed towards the divine. So this is the beauty of the path of bhakti. Swami Vivekananda gives a unique insight into bhakti. This is the sweeping vis vision of the man, the greatness of the man. You cannot fathom the beginning or the end of Vivekananda. See, look, look at it this way. He says, Hari, the name of God in, you know, in the Vaishnava traditions in India, Hari is the one who attracts, who takes away uh, our heart, our emotions, that which attracts. And there is this one force 
Vivekananda says, which is working in the entire universe. Everywhere you see passion and desire and energy and effort, it is often misdirected. It is often in error and it leads to suffering. It leads to pain. But it is the same force. That which the, by which the mother loves the baby and makes endless sacrifices to bring up a child. All throughout, not only human uh, society, in animal society also. Uh, Father's Day we had, we have Mother's Day, where the parents sacrifice themselves. They're literally sacrificing their, their physical existence, their, their time, their energy, their money, of course. Their, um, their very life is being poured into another life. That love, it's the same love of God. It is inspired by that love. That somebody goes out to make money. You see, look at the vision of Vivekananda. Somebody is ambitious. I will earn a lot of money. I want so much. I want to be rich. It is even greed. It is manifested as greed. It's a, it's a, it's a lower manifestation. It's a manifestation which will be, bring disappointment and frustration. Because it's been directed not towards God. God is pulling. But I don't see that. And I see that it is money which is pulling me. But not just money. Somebody wants to be powerful, wants to be king or president. Power is pulling that person. It is just the love of God disguised um, as power. Mistaken as if I get that, I'll be fulfilled. No, if you get God, you will be fulfilled. But the mistake is that if I get that powerful position, I'll be fulfilled. It is somebody who is passionate about science or creativity, the novelist who spends maybe um, hours and hours uh, every day, day after day, uh, writing the, uh, the, you know, the novel of her life, or the painter who spends a whole life, a lifetime, pouring time and energy into art. That urge is same, the same cosmic love working through those channels. It is the empire builder. It is the uh, it is the opposite of of the you know the billionaire who who accumulates so much wealth and then uh, becomes charitable and wants to do something for this uh, for society and pours out that wealth again back into society. It's the same love. Sometimes in lower ends, it is for that reason alone that a person commits a crime, it is the love that is being, you know, like a narrow thing. For my people, for my family and my children, I'll commit this, this crime, you know, I'm going to hurt so many other people. Uh, but it's, it's wrong and it will bring suffering to himself and to others. But it is the same love. If you see that vision, it's a vision actually. It's a vision of this entirety of what's happening in this universe. He goes even to insentient matter. That matter is being attracted to matter. Yeah. This whole cosmic dance of, of matter is going on. And there, there also, what we see as physical force is the same force, the same love. So the, Swami Vivekananda sees the love of God as not just you know, our love of God, it is actually God's love, God's power of attraction. God is a unique power of attraction. Somebody said, Sri Ramakrishna had this extraordinary power of attraction. Highly advanced spiritual souls, avatars and other highly advanced spiritual souls, they have to some extent that power of attraction which God has. 
It is God's power of attraction working through them. That's why, like, you know, people are pulled to maybe this very otherwise very ordinary uh, kind of individual. But because of that fire of God burning in his or her heart, you'll find millions being pulled to this person. They do not know what attracts them. It is the same force. Now, what does the bhakta do, the devotee? The devotee recognizes the truth about this force. So Vivekananda says, the devotee avoids all the friction and the conflict. What is the friction and the conflict? I am being propelled by this force. Every one of us is being propelled by this force. Whatever we are doing in life. When we love somebody, it's the same force. When we fight against somebody, it's the same force. When we desire, when we are angry, it's the same force. But all of it is uh, misdirected because we do not recognize its source. We do not recognize it is God who is pulling us. The bhakta, the devotee, the lover of God recognizes this and avoids all this trouble, all this friction and goes straight to the source. So when we see someone like Sri Ramakrishna consumed by his love of the Divine Mother, Someone like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu or uh, Mirabai, consumed by the love of Krishna. Notice it is all consuming. The whole day and night and life is just one thing and one thing only. And we think it is something strange. Uh, we are dealing with the reality of the world. No, they are dealing with reality. We are not even awake. We are dreaming. We are, we are in nightmares. We are wandering from dream to dream, from mistake to mistake. We can't stop wandering because that force is pulling us. So this extraordinary vision which Vivekananda had. Now if you just think about it that way and look around the world, everywhere is that force. The flower tree is blooming with flowers to attract bees which will pollinate and uh, the, the whole of nature reproducing through um, physical attraction from lower animals to human beings. All of it is that. Freud recognized the great truth. Pride and Jung recognize this, that there is this one force from which many human activities, you know, they can all be traced back to that uh, libido in, in all, of, all of us. But the mistake they made was they made that fundamental. That's also not fundamental. Even deeper than that, that's also a manifestation of that uh, ultimate, original, cosmic attraction, the attraction of God. That's just expressed only through the physical, at the physical level. So this tremendous vision, this is the vision of bhakti, of cosmic love. And the devotee recognizes this. The devotee is much more clever than us. Sri Ramakrishna would say that people cry bucketfuls for wife and money. And in the loss of a little bit of money, they make them weep. Uh, nobody weeps for God. People are mad for the world. I'm also mad, but I choose to be mad for God. Now he is the clever one. Even philosophically speaking, he is the one who, is, uh, who has seen the truth. And the others are wandering around. Why do I say, why do you think that Sri Ramakrishna has seen the truth, the spiritual giants have seen the truth and the rest of us have not? Because have we found fulfillment? We are doing all this in search of fulfillment, in search of peace. We have not found, you know, in spite of our effort of whether you are a teenager, 15 years old, or whether you are a middle-aged person, 50 years old, not found fulfillment. We, we think that hey, it's not possible, this is the way it is, this is how it will go on. No, fulfillment is possible. 
the very urge within us continuous urge for seeking fulfillment shows that fulfillment is possible and the example of the great mystics is sri ramakrishna fulfilled completely overwhelmingly overflowingly fulfilled and chaitanya mahaprabhu and mirabai and all, they are all fulfilled that means that fulfillment is possible we are not fulfilled in spite of all our efforts lifelong that means we are looking in the wrong place of course not this audience we have started looking in the right place at the minimum <laughs> at the very least so we are on the right track we have seen through the veil of illusion and error and we are proceeding in the right direction so this is the bhakta's renunciation the bhakta's renunciation is a renunciation of love bhakti does not say give this up give that up say don't bother about it just love more 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 the more you go towards the east the more the west falls behind you the more you go in one direction the more the opposite direction falls behind you more you go towards god the more uh, the world samsara falls behind you instead of trying to you know expend your energies and trying to push away samsara the more you try to push away the more you get entangled expend your energies in trying to hold on to god and to love god arjuna asks this question to krishna the path of knowledge you have taught me and also the path of love which is better evam satata yuktaye bhaktastvang paryupasate ye chapya aksharam abhyaktam tesham ke yoga vittam that's the beginning of the 12th chapter one of the shortest and most powerful chapters in the whole of the bhagavad gita often even vedanta teachers tell students to start with the 12th chapter and it's a chapter on bhakti yoga arjuna's question is those who worship you with constant love and devotion and those whose minds are set on the impersonal pure consciousness among them which is who is the better yogi and krishna answers unambiguously he says the first one is the better yogi the one who whose heart is set on god in love in devotion and then he explains why it's an important question important answer because there is nothing wrong with the path of, uh, of knowledge it is the royal path it's the direct path to enlightenment but he says that abhyakta hi gatir dukham dehavat bhiravapyate the path of the impersonal absolute is beset with difficulties for the embodied now embodied those who have bodies it means identification with the body for otherwise body is there even for the enlightened person here you can see the picture there is ramakrishna is a body though the person may not feel identified with the body but in there is still a body so literally embodiment is not what is meant embodiment itself is not the problem from the from your perspective from the enlightened one's perspective what's the difference from my perspective i feel i am this body and this body is i what is this it's i what are you this one this is embodiment for such a one the path of the impersonal absolute your pure consciousness very difficult very difficult you will the difference is this pursue the path of uh, of uh, knowledge you'll end up feeling i am a body with consciousness that's with what we what we uh, sort of uh, by default we think i am a body with consciousness most of modern consciousness studies is stuck there a body with consciousness and every solution they're trying to give to the problem of consciousness the so called hard problem of consciousness is to reduce consciousness to the body because they have taken it axiomatically ultimately a solution must be a brain based solution which is basically flesh body based solution 
you're a body with consciousness advaita vedanta wants you to do at least the first step itself in advaita vedanta is just reverse it your consciousness experiencing a body and after that body is also false it's difficult what bhakti does is in between it says forget all this here is the god of law, love direct your attention to the god of love direct your emotions to the god of love direct your ac- actions to the god of love not so difficult make a beginning and it will work that path is much easier ramanujacharya in his commentary on the bhagavad gita he says notice what the advaita vedantins say and the yogis also say enlightenment is possible if we have controlled the senses if you are enlightened you can control the senses but it's a vicious circle without perfect control of senses you you cannot make the breakthrough to realize that you are beyond the senses beyond the mind but without making that breakthrough you really cannot control the senses in the gita itself says in the katopanishad also says based on the witness consciousness which is beyond the body beyond the senses beyond the mind and intellect from that perspective now control the body mind intellect but that perspective how will you get in the first place then ramanujacharya says control of the senses is much easier if you have bhakti he introduces in between solution bhakti that which is lovable for the senses instead of stopping the senses lovable for the senses you want good food good things to see um, you know good fragrance here in the temple you have the divine form of vishnu or narayana you know, krishna you have uh, nice food prasad <laughs> offered to the lord and you get it everything you connect to the lord every music art everything is connected to the lord and it's easier for the much easier sensory energies flow towards god that's why in the path of bhakti and the path of gyana look at the difference the masters of bhakti those who teach the path of love they caution often caution the beginner against dabbling in the path of gyana because it can actually harm your development of bhakti whereas a good teacher on the path of knowledge will encourage you to cultivate bhakti if you are on the path of knowledge a good teacher will encourage you to cultivate bhakti why because that dissociation that stepping back from you know sensory sensory engrossment that is much easier with bhakti one master said see ignorance is at the level of the intellect and knowledge comes at the level of the intellect because knowledge is a function of the intellect and it removes ignorance fine but at the beginning when our personality is not integrated what happens is desire for the world which keeps us flowing towards the world that is not at the level of the intellect it's not an intellectual desire he says it's at the level of the heart of the emotions of the prana and bhakti works at that level those desires the form of the desire is i want the world what is the world thousand different things so my i want is scattered in a thousand streams in the world what does uh, bhakti do it ha- it maintains the i want but instead of the world it puts god there so you can continue wanting you can continue desiring you can continue to be greedy lustful angry but all connected to god careful not to samsara or anybody in samsara this is what bhakti does 
and that is very helpful in the path of jnana it will help you to transform the emotions much more quickly then just the insight i am pure consciousness these emotions are objects they may be objects but they will drag you in at the beginning so this is a um, practical thing when sadhu in uttarakhand said rota va gyani kis kis ko acha lagta hai the the one on the path of knowledge gyani the one of knowledge if he continuously grumbles and cries what good is that it's not in not an inspiring sight what is grumbling and crying so i knew this a uh, great vedanta teacher wonderful but he he was a uh, hot tempered and he would lose his temper just like that and scold people senior monk so somebody asked him you are the witness consciousness you are brahman why do you get angry <laughs> so he said oh that's nothing that's i can see it's it's a movement at the level of the mind i'm the witness of the anger in the mind fine maybe it's right also but <laughs> it's not inspiring it's not helpful रोता हुआ ज्ञानी किसको पसंद है पैथ ऑफ नॉलेज फॉर एवर एंग्री और ग्रम्बलिंग और क्राइंग दैट एंग्री ग्रम्बलिंग क्राइंग दैट कैन बी ट्रांसफॉर्म विद द हेल्प ऑफ भक्ति एंड द पैथ ऑफ योर नॉलेज बिकम्स क्लियर सो दैट इज द इनसाइट विच कृष्णा गिव्स टू अर्जुना ऑन द पैथ ऑफ भक्ति यू रियली डोंट नीड एनीथिंग एल्स on the path of gyana it's good to keep bhakti it's very very powerful very useful gyana is so subtle and so direct it needs a lot of support so it needs the support of purification through karma it needs the support of uh, uh, meditation focused through the path of yoga meditation it needs the cleansing and the purifying of the emotions which is done by bhakti and gyana works very well then uh, swami vivekananda another very nice insight he gives is what he calls the triangle of love just like a triangle has three angles he says the essence of bhakti is this one angle of the triangle of bhakti a triangle of love is that um bhakti love there is no bargaining in love no give and take in love i love you and you will love me no that is he says that's shopkeeping that's not love real love even in human life is first and foremost i love because you are lovable i can't even help loving up at that point yes when i expect something in return that becomes human love but bhakti is there is no bargaining no give and take i love and that's it that's the end kunti's prayer you know in the mahabharata at the end of this great tragedy kunti prays to krishna she doesn't pay pray for enlightenment also she doesn't even pray pray for moksha she said let me be born many times let me also suffer whatever you want me to suffer i am ready to suffer but one thing i only one thing i pray from you that in each birth let me have unwavering devotion at thy lotus feet let me have devotion love for god that's all i want i want love swami vivekananda says there pray not even for uh, enlightenment and liberation don't even pray for that if you have anything to pray for you pray for love you this is the highest self abnegation you erase the lower self and you, what remains is just love for god the devotee does not want to become even one with god you know that you want to taste sugar not become sugar so devotee wants to enjoy the love of god 
does not want anything in return. That's true love. That's one angle of the triangle of love. The second angle is there should be no fear. In true love there is no fear. Why this is important is often the beginning of religion is in fear and awe. And that's not wrong. One should start with respect. Real love of God is not, um, does not come cheaply, is not superficial. So one starts with uh, respect and it could be fear also. So fear of God is maybe the beginning of religion, but it's still kindergarten religion. One should move ahead very quickly. God is one's own. As much as you can make God your own, uh, the more you are advancing in bhakti. So um, a fear of God may awaken a person to religious life, to moral life. But it is uh, the more you make God your own. Look at the progression. God is my master. I am the servant. That's one step. But further, God is my friend. I am the friend of God. There is no fear with, with friends. I heard of this sadhu in Uttarakhand who would say, Yar. Yar means my buddy. Not even friend. <laughs> like Americans would say, buddy. God is my buddy. Who feeds me? I am a, a poor wandering monk. My buddy feeds me. It's the will of my buddy. Even further, even more close, is uh, uh, the relationship of child and you. God is your child. It's not mother and father. God can be father, like when we have Father's Day today. In India, God can be mother. But even further, God is your child. Now from a child, first of all, you're not afraid. Second, you have no expectation from the child. You just want to give. And there lies your fulfillment. So the child, God is your child. You want to take care of God. God doesn't need any taking care of. But God plays the child so that, why would God play the child? So that that's a wonderful way of bringing us closer to God. Remember, all of this is God's project. We are trapped in it. God has one point only, one agenda only. How to bring all of us to him. So we are God's child. God is our child. So God can play the child. Krishna, Rama, the baby Jesus. Why are those uh, important figures in uh, iconography, in uh, the stories we tell in religion? It's, it's a very powerful way of loving God. And the highest, the Madhura Bhava, God is the beloved. All of these things are uh, included there. It starts with Shanta, the, the calm contemplation of God, which is as far as the path of knowledge goes. But beyond these, these are relationships which are closer and closer. You see, humanizing our relationship with the divine. Humanizing our relationship with the divine. So this is the second um, angle of the triangle. The third angle of the triangle is that God, or bhakti, love, knows no rival. What does this mean? Truly, love of God means there must be only one love in our life. True love is always one love in life. It must be all-consuming. It can't be like a shopping list, two, do, one, two, three, four. Love God and earn a million dollars, get a college degree and become the senator. That is not, not yet bhakti. It might be good if you have a long list and one thing is there. But bhakti, real love, becomes all-consuming. The only one thing, my only definition is I am a lover of God. Nothing more. 
and even in um, uh, human relationships when you love something true somebody truly then um, swami vivekananda says that this an irritation comes if there's anything other than the loved one so you see in sri ramakrishna's life he would get irritated with anything any talk other than god talk you talk about something else in the world he would say my ears are burning to hear this talk of samsara who will talk to me about god whom can i talk to about god upanishad say anya vacha vimunchatha give up all of the talk you are immersed only in in god so the um, third angle of the triangle is god knows no rival in love it's very understandable from perspective of human love also god knows no rival in love in real love even in our human sphere all those three things must be there there must not be any bargaining it must be just giving and you would be you will not feel you are being exploited you will feel very happy just to give not want anything in return there should not be uh, any kind of fear no fear at all and third uh, there is nothing like it there's the one thing and one thing only the love of my life so the triangle of love which swami vivekananda says this is the triangle which makes um you know like formal devotion into real bhakti love of god and then he says there are stages to this so how devotion grows this is a good way of checking he gives um a number of stages first he says it starts with respect so this shraddha respect in every religion there will be a place which is respected a temple vedanta society we don't see it as just another brownstone there is a this extraordinary place we have special respect for it uh, for the the pictures it's just not a picture there is a divine presence there we have extraordinary respect for it for the altar this place for the rituals involved everything the song it's not just another song it's something related to god the respect which is given to teachers of religion swami ji says in every religion the teachers of religion are paid respect more than others why because of that relation to god so it's the beginning of devotion you have respect and that's why i said we we know that love and fear they do not go together at all but the beginning is often in awe and fear and respect so it starts there um, then it develops respect develops into love into a pull what is the characteristic of that pleasure he says preeti then second stage from shraddha it goes to preeti so i am vivekananda uses that word preeti is pleasure in loving god at the level of respect it may not be there it's something awesome and it's also a little scary i better turn up for church on sunday um and otherwise i'll get into trouble with the uh, with the boss the big boss there so that's respect maybe it's fear maybe that's not pleasure you don't enjoy it but it becomes enjoyment uh, next you uh, enjoy being in the presence of god you enjoy listening to the leela of the avatar you enjoy music bhajans uh, the devotional music you enjoy the company of devotees and the talk of god preeti love of god do you want to be alone with god me and my lord that preeti it it goes then the next level of development it comes is called viraha viraha is feeling the absence of god is sorrow it is feeling the absence of god 
it is the suffering caused by that i am not close enough to god god is not close enough to me i don't feel a living presence of god god revealed himself or herself to so many great spiritual seekers why not to me and i i deeply deeply feel i miss god so why would you want suffering this suffering is more pleasurable than all the pleasures of the world one indian saint i think it was tulsidas who said one tear said uh, shed for rama is uh, more pleasurable than all the pleasures of the world you're crying that crying for god is much more fulfilling than all the kinds of enjoyments that we get in the world it's called viraha and also goes with what i said earlier that uh, anything else is in becomes intolerable at that stage of the of the mind you see this in the life of sri ramakrishna chaitanya mahaprabhu they didn't want to hear about anything else except god it was an extreme irritant uh, for them mm-hmm. i remember in a small way i remember um this senior monk i had seen in in deoghar when i was a novice shambhu maharaj swami pavanananda ji he was a very senior monk he was an irish man and uh, he had been in deoghar for many many decades so i was teaching second world war a particularly favorite subject of mine to school kids and then i suddenly thought this swami was here during the second world war so i should ask him what was his experience like um in this ashram in india what was it like during the war year so i went and asked him i used to walk with him every day he listened and then he stopped he was tall he looked down towards me and he said uh, vishwaroop what do we have to do with such things and then he started walking to so listen to me see ultimately you are here for god realization i am here for god realization i am here for enlightenment i love god this love of god is so all consuming uh, other things are unimportant you may take a look at the newspaper and see what the news is as a matter of habit but it may, it it should not be anything that is um, important to you and by i said the newspaper the funny incident uh, swami pavanananand ji shambhu maharaj it was his daily routine in the morning for many many decades i guess early in the morning he would come after breakfast look at the daily paper newspaper and then go next thing in his routine now the funny thing was the newspaper may be a month old he'll come <laughs> and for the exact the selected 5 to 10 minutes he would scan through it Uh, i don't think he knew <laughs> that it was it was a one week old or a month old uh, we are eager for the next what's the latest news uh, breaking news you know, this breaking news might be one month old <laughs> um, i mean so he was a very interesting character one day i was cleaning up his room and i discovered a letter which had not been opened uh, it came it had come before my birth i mean <laughs> in the late 60s i think so i said swami you haven't opened this letter i i was uh, eager to see and he said let it be we'll see sometime <laughs> so sometime 30 years have gone by <laughs> um so he was very interesting that way only one thing interests him and that's god he is willing to talk for hours about spiritual matters and not at all about anything else he has no interest let viraha anyavacha vimunchata let let alone all other talk let alone all other talk then the next step even beyond that that intense missing god he says tadartha prana sanstapana 
संस्थान तदर्थ प्राण संस्थान सो वैष्णव टर्म इट मीन्स नाउ आई लिव ओनली बिकॉज आई कैन थिंक ऑफ गॉड लाइफ इट सेल्फ इज स्वीट इट्स अ वेरी हाई लेवल आई हैव नो अदर कंसर्न आई डोंट इवन वॉन्ट टू लिव इफ आई कैनॉट थिंक ऑफ गॉड वंस अ सीनियर मंक वेन बी वर नॉविसेज आई रिमेंबर इन क्लास ही सेट जस्ट इमेजिन इफ यू वेर टोल्ड Today you cannot think about Sri Ramakrishna. You are not allowed to go to the temple. You are not allowed to sing the arati. You are not allowed to think of Sri Ramakrishna. How restless you would feel! How upset you would feel! And we were newcomers. We thought, mm, I guess <laughs> it's the thing which comes after decades of development. For him, it's a living reality which he cannot miss even for one moment. For us, we are practicing. We are working towards that. So he so said, "You are not. You are not allowed to think of God." Oh that's uh, too bad okay Sri <laughs> Ramakrishna said the mind becomes like a compass needle what is the compass needle like you swing it around it whirls around and again points to the north and uh, north and south direction so the mind points towards god the world puts pressure on you something some problem is there some work is there some responsibility is there in the world and after it's done the mind swings around back to god again in our case what happens you get oh more work is there i don't get time for meditation i don't get time for reading and at the end of the day after working so much um, all these responsibilities i don't feel like it anymore that means it's still at the level of practice we have to force ourselves or uh, coax our mind uh, to think about god for in that case in the case of tadartha prana sansthana the mind has become like a compass needle which if the moment you let it free it will swing towards god its natural state is that i live because i love god life is sweet because i can think of god and love god um somebody asked me recently so do yogis and monks want a long life i said yes but the, you should see what is the purpose the purpose is god realization so if i can have more time to practice and maybe become enlightened in this life that would be the only reason for seeking a long life otherwise there's no reason for seeking a long life there is something beyond that also tadartha prana sansthana and then the highest thing is tadiyata tadiyata is being his that means everything in life now is god's the devotee is already perfected already has uh, lives in the continuous presence of god but now everything in life becomes his earlier life is wonderful beautiful because i can think about god but now life itself is uh, it belongs to god everything in everything and in every circumstance this devotee lover of god sees god everything is sacred to him everybody is sacred to him because he sees the presence of his beloved in everybody tadiyata means all of life becomes god god oriented soaked in god as it were i am god's god is mine sister nivedita would always sign nivedita of ramakrishna vivekananda her um uh, signature and she would always call herself as nivedita of ramakrishna vivekananda that is a, like a foreshadowing of tadiyata i am totally i belong to god um it i think it comes from teresa of avila where that beautiful story is there where um 
she had the vision of this magnificent figure probably it was jesus christ robed and radiant and who asked her who are you and it was her practice always to say i am teresa of jesus so she immediately re- replied i am teresa of jesus who are you and the answer was so touching i am jesus of teresa <laughs> so that is this tadiyata becoming entirely god's then god becomes yours how is this higher see even the gyani even the yogi they want god realization enlightenment freedom from suffering attainment of bliss but in this path you get all of that you never wanted it you get all of that but you get something more god becomes yours god grants those other the highest spiritual goal to others and all of that he gives to you also but god also gives himself to you so you become god's god becomes a captive of love so this is the path of bhakti some wonderful insights i shared with you the end of the book um, bhakti yoga swami vivekananda gives a soaring uh, description of how one goes from duality to non duality from dvaita to advaita through love i'll end with that um, professor arindam chakravarti whom i mentioned earlier he has given it a beautiful name prema dvaita i like that name the non duality of love or the love non duality what is that he says it begins with duality i am living my life and uh, i'm trying to make myself happy and then there is the uh, understanding that something called god exists my religion teaches me scriptures teach me i begin to get some faith it's still a feeling that i am different individual and god is something different from me then love comes in between so in vivekananda's words love comes in between and i feel a closeness to god and then it grows you know from respect uh, to the enjoyment of god to an unhappiness without when if there is no presence of god vir viraha unhappiness uh, to the uh, feeling of life itself is for god not god for my life life for god and then becoming one with god so that progresses and he says man one after another imposes every human relationship on god god as father god as mother god as master i am thy servant uh, god as friend god as child god as the beloved one after another after another every possible human relationship of love is imposed on god until one day he stands in the blaze of light god himself is revealed and then he realizes that lover love and beloved are one light and that that oneness is prema dvaita again that's not a term used by vivekananda prema dvaita there is non duality now from the perspective of love itself again this is not against advaita vedanta the idea in advaita vedanta of ananda is developed in this uh, bhakti tradition this ananda is nothing but this love in which lover and beloved the human and the divine are merged into one radiance of love so this is prema dvaita i pray to sri ramakrishna the holy mother swami vivekananda to bless us with even a particle of this love swami abhidhanand ji who was here for more than 20 years he wrote this prakritim paramam which we sing every day in that he sings 
that mother give us our hearts are dry like the desert give us that one drop of redeeming love divine love which will make us full we pray to the lord to give us that divine love which will uh, which will light up our lives which will lead to immediate continuous fulfillment now and forever om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri ram krishna arpanam astu